Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston. I'd like to welcome you to the December 2nd edition of Unity in Christ. You've probably heard a lot of personal testimonies, right? Many of us hear testimonies of God working in a person's life, and we are challenged and encouraged to glorify God, especially for those who are currently going through difficult times. It is encouraging to hear testimonies of those overcoming their troubles with God's provision. But have you heard of such testimonies? For example, when my business was failing, God came to me, told me to do such and such, so I obeyed God, and He blessed me, and now my business is booming. If you obey Him, you will be successful too. From time to time, We may hear of a famous person saying these kinds of testimonies. We oftentimes hear people testifying that their act of submission to God led them to their blessings. Sometimes we get confused when we hear these testimonies. What is the purpose of obeying the Lord? Is it the submission itself or the success that results from our submission? I want to share someone's testimony And please listen carefully. I tried my best. However, things did not work out for me. No matter how hard I tried, there was no income. My mother-in-law, who was living with us at the time, was ill. I was so worried. I tried my best to provide for my family, but the world did not turn as I wished. Time and time again, I thought Jesus was calling me. Yet it wasn't easy for me to go to Jesus. But one day, it was morning after a difficult night, Jesus came to me and he told me to do something. I was exhausted, but I couldn't ignore his words. So I obeyed him and something amazing happened to me. All my problems were solved immediately because God's blessing was upon me. He blessed me not only financially, but my mother-in-law was healed. His blessing was beyond my expression. And you will also experience such a miracle if you obey. So, obey God. What do you think? Do you also want to obey God after hearing his testimony? So what is motivating you to obey? Is it because of your financial issue? Or do you want to have healing for your ill family member? Can you guess whose testimony this is? I made some small changes, but I believe many of you realized whose testimony this is. Yes, it's Peter's testimony. This was Peter who was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, who continued to fish even after Jesus said, He will be called Cephas. Peter, who lived with his ill mother-in-law, Peter, who could not catch a single fish, even after spending all night casting a net. Jesus told him to cast a net in deep water, and Peter caught so many fish that his boat was about to sink. This is Peter's testimony.
Are you curious why I adapted Peter's testimony? I sometimes think to myself, what if Peter went out and testified in various places? Of course, his main job would be that of a fisherman and testifying as his side job, if he continued to be a fisherman, casting nets in deep waters because of what Jesus spoke. Perhaps many of you are thinking, what kind of example is that? Are you right? This doesn't make sense. If Peter lived that life, how could churches have started? Didn't Jesus build a church upon Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then why did Jesus have Peter catch so many fish that his boat was about to sink? Why did he perform a miracle of healing for his mother-in-law? Is it for Peter to travel to places to share his testimony? No. Isn't it so that through this miracle, Peter may know who Jesus is and in return follow him? Furthermore, Peter began to follow Jesus after he experiences it. I will read from Luke chapter 5, verses 4 to 7. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Take a look at Peter. He was no longer interested in the numerous fish that filled his boat. He did not worry about how much money he would make from these fish. The scripture says Peter pulled the boat onto the shore and left everything and started to follow Jesus. Yes, Jesus performed miracles to urge us to follow him, not for us to live a comfortable life making a fortune out of it.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Maker of Heaven and Earth, based on Psalms chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. We're doing a series in which each week we're looking at uh, another one of the characteristics or the attributes of God, one each week, the attributes of God according to the Bible. And therefore, we are literally doing theology because theology, which is God reasoning, God words, means we're reasoning about and thinking about God, trying to understand who God is. That's theology, doing theology. And the underlying thesis of the whole series is that all of our problems stem from not knowing who God is or forgetting who he is at the moment. And we're trying to reveal that and roll out all the meaning of that thesis as the weeks go by. Now, this week, we're looking at one of the more famous and well-known attributes of God according to the Bible, and that is that he created all things. Or as the children's catechism says, he created, God created all things for his own glory. And that's what Psalm 8's about. And let's look at this very famous, beautiful poem, this psalm by David. And let's notice the wonderful thing David saw, the frightening thing David felt, and the amazing things, the amazing thing that David learned. Okay, the wonderful thing he saw, the frightening thing he felt, and what resolves it is, and what we need to see too is, the amazing thing he learned. Now, here's what he saw. In verses 1 and 3, notice in verse 3, he says, I see your heavens, your heavens, uh, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. That's God creating. And then, But in verse 1, it says, you have set your glory above the heavens, which means when he sees, David sees the stars and he sees the heavens and he sees the moon and the sun, He sees the glory of God. They express the glory of God. They tell of the glory of God. That's another psalm, Psalm Psalm 19. But the first thing that David sees when he looks at the physical universe is he sees the reality of God. He says the, uh, the, the, the universe speaks to him of God. And by the way, it does. Joseph Addison wrote that great hymn that we often sing in the morning services. It's called the spacious firmament. It talks about the spacious firmament, the blue ethereal sky, the spangled heavens with all the stars, and then it ends this way. Talking about the moon, the sun, and the stars, he says, in reason's ear, they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Interesting, in reason's ear, they rejoice and utter forth in glorious voice, Forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Now, uh, over the centuries, lots and lots of people have found that the glories of the heavens, the physical universe, has resounded in their reason's ear. And and they looked up and they said, this couldn't have caused itself. There must be a God. Now, plenty of people don't agree with that. But it's interesting that even today, uh, the smartest people still have to write books about it. Uh, Stephen Hawking's most recent book is basically saying the universe created itself, you don't have to believe in God, but the reason he had to write the book is because of so many people who have made such compelling arguments, which he refutes in the book. 
that the physical universe is a proof or testimony or at least evidence that there's a real God out there. And he has to write the book, you know, because even though he doesn't agree with the argument, he knows that there are an enormous number of people who do, which means, yes, they, the heavens tell us about the reality of God. But David doesn't just see the reality of God up there. More to the point, he sees the magnitude and the magnificence and the majesty of God when he sees what God has created. And notice how he says it in verse 3. When I see, when I look at your, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. And the uh, commentators all point out, interesting, it doesn't say the work of his arm. It doesn't even say it's the work of his hand. It's the work of his fingers. That's how you make a model. Now think about what we're talking about here, everybody. If our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the size of North America, then our entire solar system would be the size of a coffee cup. And the Earth would be just barely visible as a kind of speck in the coffee cup. And we know that the Milky Way is one of at least 100 billion galaxies that we can see. And the universe might be way bigger than what we can see. And if all that is tiny compared to God, God made all that with his fingers. You, you know, say. If that is tiny compared to God, what is God like? No wonder David starts and ends the psalm with a praise to his majesty. He says, when I consider the work of your fingers, when I consider you made all this with your fingers... Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. I see your glory. So the first point, what David sees, is the glory and the magnitude and the majesty and the magnificence of God because he has created all things with his fingers. He's created all things, everything, you know, all the stars, all the planets, everything. Now, we're going to move on from this point. Because, yes, it's true that God made all things. The main burden of this passage, this psalm, though, is about how God made us and and what his relationship is to us. So this is not like Genesis 1, where the text is about how God made all things. It's really more about how God made us. But before moving on, let me remind you that there is no fact about God that has got more implications and applications than he made all things. There's too many to go into. I mean, in the past, you know, we've talked, when we went through Genesis 1 and 2 just two years ago, we spent a great deal of time on it. But let me, let me leave you with two applications of this idea that God is the creator of all things. Just two applications, very different. One on how to regard God and how, one on how to regard the world. If God made everything with his fingers, number one, how should you regard God? I can't help but tell you, remind you of something that some of you heard me say before. When I was a, a new Christian, a young Christian, at a, at a kind of Christian a camp in uh, Colorado, I listened to a, a woman who was a great Bible teacher. And in, the, in her teaching, at one point, she said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, was the thickness of a piece of paper then the distance between the earth and just the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the distance between the earth and the end of just our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a little speck of dust in the universe. 
And if God created all that with his fingers, and if God upholds it all, according to Hebrews 1, with a word of his power, like his pinky, a word of his power. Do you ask, she said, a God like that into your life to be your assistant? Do you, get, do you connect with him in order to get him to do what you need? Do you ask him into your life to be your consultant, to be your assistant? No, if you come into connection with a God like that, you're his assistant. If that, he's got to be a king. Not just something you bring in to add up, to spice up your life. Someone that you say, when I need you, I'll call you. No, no. See, if God is this God, how do you regard him? King, center of life, majesty. But on the other hand, if God really made all things for his own glory, do you know what that means for regarding the world? I don't think any of us have really thought this out. But I know one person who has. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century Christian minister and great philosopher and theologian. If you look at his works, Yale edition of his works, 11, which an enti- there's an entire volume called Images of the Divine Being. Because Edwards read this and thought about it. What does it mean when the Bible says he made all things with his fingers? It means he's an artist. Every other ancient creation account that was written back before or around the time of the Bible always has the world being created out of a battle. There's always some kind of struggle. There's some kind of battle. And as a result, somebody dies or something happens and the world is created. Go take a look at them. All around the world. Every other creation account is is creation is the result of a battle. Violent forces of power, powers, you know, coming at each other. But not the Bible. The Bible says our God is so all-powerful that he made the world as an artist. He made it with his fingers. He made it simply for the delight of doing it and the love of doing it. And here's what we do know about great art. Is great art always shows you the inner being of the artist. And therefore, Jonathan Edwards said, everything about this world should be telling us about God. And he had almost an ecstatic view of creation. Because he loved to walk around the woods in Connecticut. And when he saw spiders, he once wrote, he wrote a very famous letter, a spider letter, in which he analyzed very carefully, in a very scientific way, how spiders made their webs and then how they actually would use them to, to look like they were, they were actually, uh, they weren't flying, but they looked like they were flying from one branch to another, etc. And he talked about the delight of it. What, what does it show us about God? All sorts of things. The wisdom of God, the joy of God, the humor of God. He, had all, he would look at the trees. He would look at the stars. He would look everywhere. In fact, there's actually a very uh, interesting place in one of his journals, a famous place, where he talked about what it means to be holy. To be a holy soul or a sanctified soul is to be a person who sees the entire world belonging to God and shot through with his glory. And at one point he says, this is in his, from his, one of his journals, he said, what calm, this is of course ain't old language, but listen, what calm ecstasy does holiness bring to the soul? How doth it make the soul love itself? And how doth even the whole creation, the sun, the fields, and the trees love a humble holiness? How doth the whole world congratulate, embrace, and sing to a sanctified soul? He sensed the trees singing to him about God, and he would sit around and think about it. 
How does, what do the trees show me about the artist, about the one who made them? What a way to live. What an attitude toward life. What an attitude toward everything around you. A world shot through with meaning, shot through with the glory of God. Do you understand all the implications and applications? I don't. Of the fact that God made all things for his own glory. That's, that's the first thing David saw. But now the second thing, and there's some tension in this psalm. You go down to verse 3 and especially 4. There's something that David felt that was frightening. So, up, you know, verses 1 and 2 and 3 is talking about the strength of God and the glory of God. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Then verse 4 says, it makes me ask a question. What is man that you even notice him, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now, here's what he's getting at at this point. He's saying, this looks like a philosophical question, doesn't it? Sounds like a seminar. What is human beings? What are they? Class? And, and No, it's not a philosophical question. It's a rhetorical question, and it's a cry from the heart. And he's saying, when I look at all this, when I look at the vastness out there, I say, what are we? We're, we're nothing. He was looking at glory, and the glory made him feel, by comparison, worthless. And he was looking at the vastness, and the vastness made him feel, by comparison, insignificant, negligible. Now, we say, okay, I understand how he felt that way. But I want you to see that the question he is raising here is, if anything, more poignant for us than it was for ancient times. Very often, when you're studying the Bible, you have to say, uh, listen, it's very important to understand that back then, when people asked this question, this is what they meant. Actually, this is a, this is a different kind of text. This is a text that's probably more directly relevant to us than it was to the people he was uh, talking to at the time. Why? If you believe in God, but you believe this great God who made the world with his fingers doesn't care about us, you see, that makes you feel insignificant and worthless. David was saying, how do I know that the power behind the universe cares about me at all? And of course, you can believe in God and still wonder whether or not this great God even cares. But what about today? When you have a culture that in a sense is officially secular, and when not most of the people, but actually the people who write the books and people who teach in the, cor- teach in the courses and the people who are at the top of the cultural institutions actually all say, as far as we know, we're here by accident. And everything that happens is a natural cause. There's no supernatural cause. There's no creator God. If, listen, if you feel insignificant and worthless because you're not sure whether the God behind the universe even cares about you, how much more reason have you got to feel insignificant and worthless when you know the universe doesn't care about you? When you absolutely know it. See, let's ask Bertrand Russell, very, very prominent 20th century philosopher, and let's say, if there is no God, if there is no creator, If this world is not the work of God's fingers, if there's no one out there who ever made it, what are we? What is, what significance are we? Do we matter? Does anything that we, we uh, uh, do matter? That's the question to Bertrand Russell. This is what he says. He's being perfectly rational. He says, no, man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. 
His origin, his hopes, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, inspiration, and brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Did you hear that? He says, now that we know that there is not a God that created the world, this means that everything you do now, no matter what it is, is going to make no difference in the end. Because the universe is blind and it's impersonal and it doesn't care. And that means that you could live a nice, good life or you could, live, you could be a serial killer. Do you realize in the end it's not going to matter because not only will you die, but everybody, the whole civilization will die. It will be as if it never happened. Because the universe doesn't care. Because it's blind and impersonal. So what are you? Does anything you do matter? Are you significant? And the only answer, he says, now is no. And he says, you cannot possibly live your life without building it on what he called a foundation of unyielding despair. Anything else is dishonest. Steven Pinker, now let's, let's, let's ratchet up to, the, to right now. Steven Pinker, who teaches, you know, he's a public intellectual, teaches at Harvard, recently wrote an essay called The Stupidity of Dignity. John Gray, who's a philosopher at the London School of Economics, wrote a book called Straw Dogs. And you know what they both said? They both said, look, I know you feel like there's human beings have dignity. I know you feel like there's such a thing as human rights. But the fact is, if you believe science, there is no such thing as dignity or human rights. That's what it says. And what they're going to say is, if there's no God, of course you feel significant. Of course you feel that human beings are all valuable and have dignity and are important. You know why you feel that way? Because your ancestors who felt that human beings had dignity, that that trait helped them survive. And that's the reason why it's now hardwired into your genetic hardware. And that's the reason why, see, biology has programmed you to feel significant, but you're not. Because in the end, no matter what you do, it's all going to go to nothing. It's not going to matter. Nothing you do makes any difference. What is man? When I think of the heavens and I think of the vastness, what are human beings? Are we significant at all? Do we matter at all? The answer of today is not a bit. Because the power behind the universe does not care. It does not know you. Now, where does that bring us? See, David is bringing up some, a feeling that he has, even with belief in God. Even with belief in God. Maybe the God, power behind the universe doesn't care. And that makes you feel insignificant. But what if you believe in a universe in which it is absolutely blind, absolutely impersonal, and it's going to devour you? See, the secular understanding of the universe without God, it's going to devour you, and it's going to devour all of your loved ones, and it's going to devour all of your hopes, and it's going to go as if it's going to be just devour you into a black hole. It'll never be, it'll be as if none of you ever existed. Nothing you do counts. Nothing you do makes a difference. Unless there's a creator God. And even if there is a creator God, maybe he doesn't care either. Do you have the intellectual integrity to admit that this is true? You need evidence that there's a God to really believe that there's any significance to human beings. And even if you believe there's a God, you need evidence that he cares and is mindful of you. Samuel Beckett, in the mid-20th century... He was a playwright, and he wrote a play called Breath. It's 35 seconds long. 
And by the way, you can see it on YouTube. There's several versions of it. You know, have you ever heard of it? It's 35 seconds long. There's nothing on the stage but trash. Nothing but trash. And it's dark. And when the play starts, the light starts to come on. It's kind of dim. And you hear the cry of a baby. And you hear someone inhaling. And then it gets brighter. And you see all the trash. And then it starts getting dimmer. And you hear an exhale. And you hear a gurgling cry of somebody dying. And the lights go off. 35 seconds. What's that about? You're trash. Yes, for a while you breathe and you feel significant. But that doesn't matter. You're still trash. Life is trash. Well, you say, it's kind of looking at things negatively. <laughs> but here's what I want you to consider. Recently, there was a book. It was reviewed in the New York Times Book Review called All Things Shining. A Harvard professor and a Berkeley professor. And, it, and what they were saying is, they're saying, now that we know there is no God, how do you find meaning in life? And they were concerned. Because even though at this point, the number of people who say they don't believe in God is growing rapidly, it's still not a majority. The number of people who are really secular is still not the majority, but it's working its way. This, they said, a nihilism is working its way through our culture. And it is. There's a cynicism, a deep cynicism. We, cannot make, we, we have to make fun of everything. We can't lift anything up. We can't really keep a straight face. You see, if anyone holds forth, we want to tear them down. He says there's a nihilism. There's a sense of uh, meaninglessness that's working its way through the culture. And you know what they suggest? They suggest we go back to the classics. And you know, when it was, re when it was reviewed in the New York Times book review, uh, the reviewer says, yeah, but the classics all believe, yeah, they're written by the Greeks and the Romans and the, <laughs> written by people who don't believe what we believe about the universe. Of course they believed in nobility and right and wrong and heroism and all that stuff. Of course they did. And of course that shot their lives filled with meaning, but we can't do that anymore. What are you going to do? Here's what you can do. You see what David learned. And what did David learn? David here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we believe. So he's not just writing as an ancient, you know, writer. And uh, he's also writing as a person who is getting things revealed to him. Not fully, but partly. And I would like you to see a couple of interesting things that show him that God does care. And will show us that the power behind the universe is mindful of you and, is, and, and does care for you, which can shoot your life filled through with meaning instead of what the secular culture around you is going to be doing as you live. If you don't have what David has, I'm afraid it's just going to suck very slowly, kind of unconsciously, kind of uh, subliminally, just suck the meaning and joy out of your life. Here's what David learned. First of all, he learned that God cared because of creation. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And then immediately what happens in verses five to eight? It says, but you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, this is a recapitulation of Genesis one and two in which the Bible says human beings were made in God's image. These are amazing terms. Glory, honor, dominion, crown. These are only things that usually are, these are attributes of God in the Bible. And yet they're, they're ascribed to us. And this is David's recalling what the book of Genesis 1 and 2 says. And that is that when God created us, he put his image on us. He 
made us rational, he made us moral, he made us self-conscious, he gave us a soul, and many other things. And therefore, every human being is infinitely precious. God cares about them and cares how they're treated. This doctrine of creation in the image of God is very important. In other times, other places we've talked about it, but let me just consider a couple things for you. Um, Some years ago, there was a medical resident. He's now a doctor, but he was a Christian man who was telling me he was a medical resident. And he, of course, the other residents were doing their psychiatric rounds. And at one point, they looked at a particular patient, and this patient was very depressed, and he hated himself, and he didn't like himself at all, and he was suicidal. And uh, so the doctor was sitting there with all the residents, and they were working on the case. And at one point, one of the uh, female residents said, well, what we have to do is, you know, the, the, you have to show him that he's a valuable person, that he's, he's not trash, he's not nothing, he's really important, he's valuable and... and uh, uh, you know, very important as a human being. Every human being is valuable. And you know what the, the doctor who was leading the resident said? How do you know that, he said. We're scientists. What scientific basis is there for saying that? Now, I imagine that was the Socratic method. But he was pushing them. And I remember the, what my, uh, my friend who told me about it said is that though all the residents disliked it and were very uncomfortable with what he was doing, He was trying to say, oh, yeah, you have all these wonderful little feelings about how everybody's very valuable. What scientific evidence is there that human beings are worthwhile? And he was just pushing him. And they were all pretty upset, except the Christian resident who said, but I know he's made in the image of God, and therefore I know he's not junk. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what Simon Beckett says. It doesn't matter. He's not junk. Nobody is. Whether you're mentally handicapped or brilliant, you're in the image of God. Whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian, no matter what your race is, doesn't matter what your class is, you're not junk and you need to be treated with dignity. Every human being. It's an enormous resource for not only psychological self-worth, but also social justice. And it also means that every person you ever meet, no matter who they are, must never be treated with disdain, It has enormous implications for you psychologically, sociologically, and socially, uh, relationally. Do you believe this? That this is how God made every human being? And so what David is saying is that it's creation, and the way we were created in the image of God is one of the major evidences that God does care. That as great as he is, so big that he made all this with his little fingers... He cares for you because he put his image on you and therefore every single person is of infinite worth and value. Every human being. But that's not all that David learned. If you look carefully, which I'm about to show you, in the psalm, David has hints not only of God's creation, but also of the doctrine of God's redemption that proves that he cares. First of all, in verse 4, If you have a King James Bible, which probably, my guess, I don't know, maybe you do. Maybe somebody brought a King James Bible. The King James Bible, uh, verse 4 says this. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Because the Hebrew word translated care in more modern translation is a word that actually means go out and find. To visit someone means you care enough to go out and find them. To move. And that's the reason why literally 
Literally, what is, the son of, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? What is David thinking? David says, what are we? That we fill your mind and that you visit us. You're so great, so big that even all this vastness is small to you. And yet, he says, you, we fill your mind and you visit us. Well, how does he know that? And my, my guess is that he probably doesn't know what that meant. He was inspired, but he probably doesn't know what that meant. And you say, well, maybe visit means, maybe it's figurative. Maybe it just means that God looks down. No, the New Testament tells us God did visit us and he came down. And now we begin to see the ultimate proof that the power behind the universe cares. Because when Zechariah in Luke 1 was told by an angel that not only John the Baptist, his son was going to be born, but he would be a forerunner of the Messiah. Do you remember what he said when his, when his tongue was loosed in Luke 1? Zechariah said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. When he heard that the Messiah was coming, you have visited your people. And David has a hint that that is happening. And that's how you know that this enormous universe is not vast and empty and is going to just eat you alive and all your hopes, but that it cares and the power behind it cares. But it goes beyond that. And look at verse 2. Probably when you read through Psalm 9, you kind of skip over verse 2 because it doesn't make any sense. Don't you do that? When I'm reading the Bible and I get to a crazy verse, just a crazy verse, you go, what? And then you're on to verse 3 and then it makes sense and on you go. Don't you do that? You're going, ah, what? Ah, you know, so that's the way I read. Uh-huh, 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 okay. You get to the end and you really say, well, I'll have to look that up in a commentary. And you never do. Uh, But verse 2 is actually extremely important. You know why? Because it's the only part of Psalm 8 that Jesus himself ever quoted. Oh, yeah. It says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And that word avenger, by the way, is not positive. It's a negative word. It means to a vengeful person or a hater. Verse 2 says that this world is filled with evil. Foes, enemies, see? Hateful, hateful people. It's filled with enemies. What is God going to do about the evil? And very enigmatically, crazy almost, after verse 1 and 3 talking about this incredibly glorious God, so huge that he has to stoop down to look at the heavens that he made with his fingers. He says, the way that he is going to deal with evil in this world is out of the mouths of babies and infants. What? In Matthew 21, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem. See, people expected the Messiah. They hoped for the Messiah. But they assumed that when the Messiah showed up, He would ride in on a war horse as a general, followed by all of his soldiers, and they would take over. And instead, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in on a little donkey, and the people who shouted Hosanna were told were the poor and the blind and the lame. And the respectable people, the Pharisees and the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, listen to that rabble acclaiming you. Tell them to be quiet. These people shouldn't even be here. Why do you even associate with such people? And Jesus says, don't you know the scripture or understand the scripture? Haven't you read the place where it says, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, I have ordained strength? What is Jesus saying? 
Don't you know that this is how God deals with evil in this world? As great a God as he is, he deals with it through weakness. He deals it through suffering. He deals with it in a way so differently than you can conceive. This is the reason why back in the beginning of the Bible, go to Genesis. Who does God always work through? Always the unwanted woman. Always the son, not the son that's favored, but the son that's rejected. Not the beautiful and the wanted woman, but always the rejected woman. Over and over again. Why does he do that? And then he chooses Israel to be the vehicle by which to bring salvation to the world. Why does he do that? He tells you in in Deuteronomy 7. God actually says so. He says, I want you to realize why I chose you. Because you're the weakest, smallest, baddest nation out there. Why does God do that? Because it was a way of... Pointing to the future, because in the ultimate example of verse 2, in the ultimate example of how God's glory and power manifests itself against the evil of this world, God became a baby. God became an infant. He was born in a manger, and he grew up, and instead of taking power, he lost power, and at the end of his life, he went to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? To die for our sins. Why did he die for our sins? Because He was mindful of us. He went to the cross. We filled his mind. Where? Look at John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All that was the night before he died. At one point he says, Father, for their sake, talking about us, I sanctify myself. That word sanctify means I set myself apart. Why am I going to the cross? Why am I taking on this suffering? For them. There's the ultimate proof that the creator of the universe, you fill his mind, little you, Little you, you fill his mind. So much that he was willing to come and become a baby and become weak and die on the cross for you. When you understand the gospel, that can change you so much. Why? Because now you know you're not junk. Now you know nobody else is. You know, we live in a culture in which in the psychology class, it'll tell you, your problem is a lack of self-esteem. And in the philosophy and biology class, it'll tell you you're nothing. You're just evolved amoeba. Well, that's the way it is. How do you keep those two things together? There's no way. That's going to, we no longer have that coursing through our veins. Instead, we say, how does all the world, the trees, the fields, the sun, the moon, the stars, sing to us about the glory and joy that's of God? And that's what we're in for. You can live a life of meaning. You can live a life of hope. You can get that down deep in your own psychological uh, makeup so it creates well-being. It can make you a person who cares about social justice instead of saying, oh, you know what, it's all going to burn up in the end anyway. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. We thank you for the great thing that David saw the frightening thing that David felt that is now permeating our culture. And it sometimes comes in on us. But we thank you for the wonderful things you taught him by revelation. We know you love us. We know you have visited us. And we know that we fill your mind because you're willing to go to the cross for us. That's how we know. And we thank you for all these assurances, we pray that you would let them reshape the way in which we look at ourselves and you and our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. 
Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Following is the program called Questions from the Bible. Hello, everyone. This is Susan Holtgrew, your host for the program Questions from the Bible. All throughout history, Christians have been forced to worship false gods and foreign idols, and many have died refusing to do so. In the 1930s, Korean Christians living in the era of Japanese colonization were persecuted, tortured, and eventually killed if they did not bow to the Japanese Shinto gods. Among those Korean Christians martyred was Pastor Kichir Ju. In a sermon, this pastor had said that he could not live if he kneeled to a god other than the Lord and that he would keep his faith. He lived such a life and eventually faced death. Pastor Ju was severely tortured for refusing to worship false gods and while in jail was martyred at the age of 49. During this era, many Christians were jailed and martyred for resisting worship of Shinto gods, not just Pastor Ju. Idol worship forced by the Japanese and the undaunted resistance to this by the people of faith occurred not so long ago in history. There is a very similar event recorded in the Bible. It is when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, commanded people to bow to the golden idol he had raised. Today's question from the Bible comes from the passage in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15. When Daniel and his three friends refused to worship the golden idol and King Nebuchadnezzar asks them, And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Daniel and his three friends were part of the first group of captives when Babylon took over the kingdom of Judah. They were from royal and aristocratic families, and while in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, they received specialized education of Babylonian academia and language. In Daniel chapters 1 and 2, Daniel and his three friends gained the trust and favor of Nebuchadnezzar when Daniel interpreted the king's dreams. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar creates an idol from gold and commands all people to bow to it. He decreed that anyone who does not bow to the idol would be cast into a furnace of blazing fire. In this incident from Daniel chapter 3, Only Daniel's three friends are part of the story. Daniel is not with them. The three friends are brought before the king for refusing to bow to the idol. Because Nebuchadnezzar favored these three, he did not immediately punish them, but tried to give them another chance. In verse 15, we read, Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, 
to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? During this time in history, Babylon had taken over many countries and was a powerful nation with even more land than Assyria. Most probably, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon thought this was due to his own wisdom and strength, and there was no one to challenge him. Like other kings of great nations in history, Nebuchadnezzar possessed absolute power and fell into the arrogance that he was no different than a god. This is why he asked the three friends who refused to bow to the idol, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He had completely neglected the fact that the writer of history is God. It is not that he did not know, but rather he overlooked and forgot this fact. At one point, he came to realize that God is the overseer of not just the present, but also of the future and all past history. This was in Daniel chapters 1 and 2. Daniel interprets the king's dream, and he hears that after Babylon, there will be strong nations like Persia, Greece, and Rome, but they will all fall. However, God will set up a kingdom that will endure forever. Hearing this, Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged and praised God. But as the years passed, in Daniel chapter 3, he completely forgets this, and acts as if he were the writer of history, and is now asking Daniel's three friends, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? In verses 16 through 18, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, answered, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were very firm in saying that they don't need to answer the king. This means they would not change their will in refusing to bow to the idol. They profess that God is the God of salvation who can deliver them from the blazing furnace in the king's hand. They further declared that even if God does not save them at this immediate time and place, they will keep their faith and not bow to the idol. Isn't the three friends' confession and refusal to bow to the idol similar to Pastor Jew refusing to worship Japanese Shinto gods? Daniel's three friends did not pray to God to save them in a moment where they were facing death for resisting worship of an idol. Instead of praying to avoid death, they praised God for who he is. They declared God as the God of salvation who can save them from any and all situations. They had such absolute faith in our God of salvation that they were able to profess that they would never worship idols even in the face of death. As you all know, Daniel's three friends were tied and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire, but not a hair on their head was singed. Nebuchadnezzar sees this and praises the God that has saved them. Nebuchadnezzar, who had previously asked, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now declared, 
There is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples the parable of tares among the wheat. Just as the tares are burned in the time of harvest, so will it be at the end of the world. He explains that on the day of judgment, sons of the evil one and those who commit lawlessness will be gathered up and burned with fire. God is the Savior who delivers from the furnace of Babylon and the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And even if he does not, God will save his children from the fire of the last judgment. God saved Daniel's three friends and Pastor Jew, who kept their faith and resisted the worship of idols. Daniel's three friends did not burn and lived to prove the God of salvation. Pastor Jew also attested to the same God of salvation through his death. Nebuchadnezzar asked what God is there who can deliver out of his hands. More accurately speaking, God did not deliver the three friends from Nebuchadnezzar's hands, but rather Nebuchadnezzar could not take them from God's hands. No man, however powerful, can take someone from God's hands. I will end with the passage from John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, where Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's it for today's question from the Bible series. Thank you, and God bless.
I am not against being prosperous by the blessings and miracles that come from God. If He gives, then we receive. And I am not saying it is wrong to testify to others the experience of such blessings and miracles. It is our duty to testify what He has done in our lives. But what I want to share with you today is what the fundamental purpose of blessings and miracles are. The fundamental purpose is not for prosperity, nor is it to bear testimony. Those are secondary. The fundamental purpose of blessings and miracles are for us to know the Lord more and to begin to follow Him. Although we experience God's blessings and may become successful and testify and encourage others to do the same, if we don't have the determination to follow Jesus, through those blessings and miracles, then there is no meaning to the blessings and miracles we just received. What would the Lord want us to see through the small and big blessings that God gives us? Is it the miracle itself or the Lord who performs it? I hope we do not lose our focus to the blessings and miracles that God gives. If we have the wrong intention in pursuing Jesus, we will soon leave him when our end means are not resolved. It is easy to lose hope when we follow Jesus, looking for certain phenomena, miracles, or blessings. Our purpose of following Jesus is because he is the true God and he alone is God. He is the life and the truth. In John chapter 6, there was a crowd of people and disciples who experienced the miracle of five loaves of bread and the two fish. They began following Jesus in hopes of another miracle. However, when Jesus pointed out their wrong intentions in their purpose 
for following him, he stated that they will not receive what they are after. They all left Jesus and did not follow him again, as shown in John chapter 6, verse 66. As Jesus sees the crowd and the disciples leaving, he asked the twelve disciples whether they too will leave him as well. And to Jesus' question, Peter gives the right answer that we all should stay. Let's read John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Yes, the reason you and I are following Jesus is because He is the Holy One and the giver of everlasting life. What is your reason for following Jesus? Is it because He is the everlasting life? Or is it because you anticipate the blessings and miracles you will receive from Him? I hope that our reason for following Jesus is not for secondary reasons, but out of the essential purpose. This ends today's program. Thank you for joining me, and I will see you again next week. Goodbye.